Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Dan Kilbride. I am the chair of the history department at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, Ohio. I'm also the host of New Books in American Studies. That means that from time to time, we find an author of an interesting book on American history. It's usually American history on this show, but it could be literature, science, public health, uh, urban studies, anything and everything to do with the United States. And today we are joined by Nathaniel Millett, He's an associate professor of history at St. Louis University, and we're here to discuss his book, The Maroons of Prospect Bluff and Their Quest for Freedom in the Atlantic World. This book's been published by the University Press of Florida, or maybe it's called the University of Florida Press by now, in 2013. So Nathaniel Millett, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thanks for having me. I I really appreciate it. It's our pleasure. Uh, This book is a really timely one because... Even though our listeners might not be aware of it, we are in the midst of the 200th anniversary of the War of 1812, Uh, so we're right in the middle of that. Uh, It's an important war in American history, and it's a war that is front and center in this book. Uh, So that's something that our readers could learn a lot about here. There's also a lot of other really interesting stuff, uh, especially the early history of Florida, which this book deals with, uh, the history of what are called maroon communities, uh, something that's uh, one of the most interesting subjects about the history of slavery, and what is really apropos in historical studies now, which is the history of the Atlantic world. So this book intersects a lot of very uh, hot and, and topical areas in, the, in historical scholarship today. So uh, Nathaniel, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your path to this book? Um, as you said, I'm an associate professor at, at St. Louis University. Um, this is my, my first book, and um, this book is a, a case study which very much reflects my, my interest in, in Atlantic history, the borderlands, um, situating North American history in a comparative perspective, uh, the War of 1812, I suppose, to a degree as, as well. Um, but like I said, this is a, a micro-history even, um, or a case study uh, of, a, of a maroon community, which I'm sure that we'll discuss, which I think pokes at very, very big ideas in both the history of North America, the Western Hemisphere, and the broader Atlantic world um, during the colonial period and age of revolution. One thing uh, that our, our readers might not know that much, or listeners might not know that much about, is the early history of Florida. Um, Florida probably enters the historical consciousness of most Americans sometime around the 1940s or 1950s with the advent of air conditioning and Disney World. So, you know, in terms of its intersection with early American history, can you just locate Florida for us in the era of the Atlantic Revolution? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, and I think you're entirely right. Most, most Americans, again, don't start to think about Florida until they start to think about the citrus industry and uh, tourism and Disney World and things like that. But Florida has, uh, by North American standards, an ancient history of European, African, and indigenous contact. And, and actually, the, the oldest history of, of that, uh, beginning in 1513, uh, so it's the 500th anniversary 
and Europeans and Africans arrived in Florida just around um, Easter of, of 1513. Uh, Florida, for the vast majority of the next 300 years, was a Spanish colony, um, with the exception of what's called the British period from 1764 to um, 17. Uh, to the end of the American Revolution, uh, 1783, um, and it existed existed very much on the periphery of, of Spain's Atlantic Empire. And, and what happened in, in Florida is you got this society which is very much different from French and English North America, where it was underpopulated by by Europeans, and accordingly uh, they had to go to great lengths to work with Africans and Native Americans to make sure that Anglo America did not acquire Florida. Um, as a result, you get this really interesting fluid and dynamic society where, in particular, racial, racial relations are much more fluid. Um, Spanish Florida drives Anglo-America, the English colonies, and then the young United States uh, nuts uh, because they're convinced <laughs> that this undermines uh, plantation slavery, it undermines their relations with the Native Americans, and that Florida is basically um, a security threat um, to, to the Anglo colonies and then the, the young United States. Um, Florida will become part of the United States in, in 1819 uh, with a treaty which goes into effect in, in 1821. Um, so Florida was a Spanish colony for infinitely longer than it's been part of, of the United States. Mm-hmm. Another thing that this book deals with, which maybe requires a little bit of uh, definition, is the concept of a maroon community. Uh, those who study Atlantic history know maroon communities well. But in American history, they are less of a major subject. What is the maroon communities, and where do we find them in the Atlantic world? Sure. Uh, maroons are, I think, utterly fascinating, and that's what's at the core of this, this book, uh, North America's largest uh, maroon community. Uh, and a maroon community was, was something on the surface relatively deceptively simple, I'll say, and that is a community of, of former slaves and or their descendants um, who had abandoned slavery for themselves, usually fled into mountainous interiors or to swamp lands, and, and lived usually in very inhospitable environments, and were usually kind of guerrilla entities um, guerrilla and survivalist entities, which did everything possible to avoid re-enslavement. In virtually every other slave society in the Americas, in places like Brazil and Suriname, Jamaica, Cuba, um, there was a great tradition of of marinage. Um, There were thousands of of escaped slaves, usually living in the interior. Some of these communities uh, got to number into the thousands. The biggest example ever is is a maroon, which spanned most of the 1600s in in Brazil, called Palmeiras, Mm -hmm. which numbered about 10,000 inhabitants. Uh, spread around a, a series of different villages. Um, these Maroons had a couple of other hallmarks. Uh, some of the biggest and most successful ones uh, oftentimes signed treaties with the colonial governments. Uh, this happens in Jamaica and Suriname uh, because colonial armies simply couldn't defeat them. And when they signed treaties, they tended to gain a version of legal status. Um, but it came with uh, things that the Maroons had to give up. They, they usually had to um, agree to not accept new members, to police the island slaves. Frequently, these Maroon communities owned slaves and could be described as actually kind of pro-slavery entities. Hmm. Um, maroon culture tended to be conservative or restorationist in that Maroons tended to hark back to Africa. Um, in how they, they thought about their, their culture and conceptualized their identity. But what is interesting is um, it was never a, a perfect reproduction of, of Africa um, because of the effects of time 
and different versions of, of Africa because of the diverse array of maroon founders, uh, it tended to be fictive and imagined. And some maroons, the longest-lived ones, um, ended up developing ethnic identities where they came to think hmm. of themselves as as a particular type of, of people. Uh, they developed languages, religions, and a lot of maroons in Suriname and Jamaica continue to exist today. Um, you can find them in the interior, and they have ethnic identity and separate legal statuses. And... Wow. Um, one last thing, historians have argued for a very long time that North America lacked the tradition of marinage. Um, right. Because they largely did, uh, because of the different black-to-white ratios, because of the nature of plantation slavery. Uh, but there, there were maroon communities, and, and the most formidable and largest was, was this community that I look at. This is a book that uh, is very much, uh, maybe it's unfair to say it's driven by a particular person, but there's a, a a figure in this book that is a, a major driver of the uh, the action in the book. It's a guy named Edward Nichols. Uh, Edward Nichols, uh, I'm going to let you describe him, but uh, I'll, I'll say that he's a uh, foe of the United States, a, a dedicated foe, a principled foe of slavery, and a friend of African peoples. Um, who is this person? That's exactly right. And um, you, uh, you're, I'm glad that you identified that, that he's front and center in the book. And, and um, that reflects, from what I can figure, looking at, at pretty much the extent documentary record, the realities of, of events as they unfolded in, in the Southeast. Um, Nichols is an utterly fascinating character. He's a Royal Marine. Um, he's in the British, British, British Navy. Um, he is born in the middle 18th century in Coleraine in, in the north of Ireland, um, and, and he grows up in, in a deeply religious, Ulster, Protestant, Calvinist household. And Nichols has an intense sense of the British Empire as an empire of, of liberalism, an inclusive empire, and Nichols tends to see things in very black and, and white terms. And I think at the core of Nichols's identity is uh, his Northern Irish upbringing in a fundamentally English empire, and mm. the fact that he feels, um, I think, a bit insecure. And he compensates by um, tremendous energy and this idea of, again, this expansive British empire. And one of the things that this makes him come to do is, is really revile slavery, um, revile slavery as an affront to this, this British entity and uh, an institution which cannot be reconciled with, with his moralism and his, again, kind of extreme Aristotelian approach to everything. Um, as a result, <laughs> he, he comes up with this uh, anti, unique, I call it, anti-slavery um, ideology in which he, one, identifies slavery as, as completely evil, two, something which can be violently attacked and, and murder and, and war are okay to, to fight slavery. And three, um, one of the things to make one and two possible is his belief that Africans and their descendants are entirely equal to whites. And mm -hmm. there's an extreme anti-racism, I suppose, embedded in his ideology. Yeah. Um, and number four, I suppose, what makes this unique is that he acts on this. And he acts on this during the War of 1812, which is what I'm talking about in my book, and, and then most conspicuously later in his career, when between 1829 and 1834, he's the British governor, Fernando Poe. And Fernando Poe is an uh, mm -hmm. anti-slavery outpost off the coast of Africa in modern-day Equatorial Guinea, where his job is to oversee um, the, the British Navy intercepting illegal slavers and then um, reintroducing Africans to, to largely Sierra Leone. And then after he retires, he becomes a very prominent, very famous anti-slavery advocate who uh, does all the kind of dinner circuit in, in, in Britain <laughs> and, and becomes a, a great... Um, 
a great friend of, of all the leading lights of, of anti-slavery activism. Mm-hmm. Um, Nichols certainly stands out in the sort of grand history of anti-slavery for somebody who was not only anti-slavery, but anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, this might seem counterintuitive to some people, but you know, in, in the history of the anti-slavery struggle, it was, it was more common to be both racist and anti-slavery at the same time. But Nichols, maybe we'd say had a more modern racial sensibility that he, saw the racial core of, of, of the justification of slavery. To what extent was Nichols able to transcend the overwhelming racist atmosphere of this time period and make a personal and empathetic connection to uh, African peoples? Well, it, it's remarkable, and you're exactly right, that even the leading anti-slavery and, and abolitionist advocates were frequently what we would identify as deeply racist. Uh, they abhorred the institution, but it was frequently for self-serving reasons, and they they didn't necessarily believe in, in, in black equality or the potential for assimilating former slaves, and they believed, mm-hmm. in, they believed in colonization, they believed in all types of, of different things, which we would, again, identify as deeply racist. Um, not Nichols. Um, Nichols fights and serves and is willing to die with, with people of color, um, both in, in Florida and in, in Africa. Um, he works closely with them. He preaches his radical anti-slavery message directly to them. He sits down and, and, and converses with these things. And from what I can figure as well is after he, he leaves Florida in 1815 and, and leaves this independent maroon community, he keeps up a, a correspondence uh, with the community, usually hmm. via proxies as, as well. So, I mean, he's, he literally right. is, his, I don't know, transatlantic pen pals with this maroon community um, <laughs> after he'd gone back to London and, and gotten married and, and begun what could be a potentially very middle-class life. Um, so his energy, I think, is, is unrelenting. And um, it's, again, this unique combination of, of ide- radical ideology and, and action. Um, I mean, he's, he's there fighting and, and bleeding and living side by side um, over the course of decades with, with people of African descent. Uh- you know, one of the major subjects of this book is the the the, the pressure and the, the tension uh, between the revolutionary movements of the late 18th and early 19th century and uh, slavery in the entire Atlantic world. So, you know, we want to read to remind people that you know when we say the revolutionary era, we're not just talking about the era of the American Revolution, but the the revolutionary movements in the United States, in France, in Saint-Domingue, and in the Spanish-American world. Um, How did these revolutionary movements create uh, a crisis for the institution of slavery? I think they absolutely do, and uh, I think you really see it it come to the fore in in the Southeast. I I think because you have so many multiple strands. Um, You have the ideological contradictions, the glaring ideological contradictions of, of the American Revolution, and all of the rhetoric of equality and all men are created equal with slavery and the rapid displacement of, of Native Americans. You have the mm-hmm. crumbling Spanish Empire, um, who is reeling from the Napoleonic invasions and then from the Latin American wars of, of revolution. Um, you have people who are eyewitnesses to the Haitian Revolution. But I think the most important thing is that you also have uh, the westward and southward expansion of the American plantation complex. Um, onto very unstable grounds where Native Americans are, the Creeks and, and the Seminoles in particular, are, are still very, very powerful. 
And um, you have, uh, I think, a deep insecurity amongst white Americans about the unsteady ground, I suppose, that slavery is, is moving into. And um, fears about slave resistance are at all-time highs. Uh, fears about um, abolitionism and anti-slavery are at all-time highs. And uh, this kind of unifying idea of fears about racial disorder, which is I, I use a lot in the book, are at, at all-time highs. And all these things come crashing to a head in Spanish Florida and enter, enter Nichols, enter the, the War of 1812 against the world's foremost power in a war which was pretty ideological, certainly the rhetoric between the United States and Great Britain about which is the most liberal nation, which nation most fully represents human progress. And then you have an anti-slavery advocate right in the middle of, of all of this, um, arm and train and radicalize hundreds and hundreds of people of, of African descent. Um, so I think you see that the multiple uh, economic, physical, um, geopolitical and intellectual contours of the age of revolution all crashing together in, in the Southeast. One of the questions I frequently ask students uh, in a variety of classes where we talk about slavery is the, uh, I hate this word, but I'll use it anyway, the impact of the revolutionary era on slavery. Do you think that slavery emerges from the revolutionary era in, say, 1815 uh, weaker or stronger than it went into it? I, I, I think stronger, without a doubt. And I, I think, one, it, it emerges from the Constitutional Convention in a stronger position because the Constitution um, really doesn't attack it and empowers the South with the three-fifths compromise. And I think the War of 1812 is, is utterly central in the history of American slavery. Um, the Louisiana Purchase in, in 1803 is is important, but uh, I feel very much that it's the War of 1812 um, that allows Americans in, in the South to um, to to eventually acquire Spanish Florida, to pacify the native tribes, and to make that insecure ground, which I just referred to, much more secure. Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of white American Southerners' minds, uh, the war secures the Southern frontier for the expansion of, of slavery. Um, so I think in, in no uncertain terms, slavery emerges much more importantly. And then if you look at the antebellum period, I mean, slavery with the Industrial Revolution in, in Great Britain will become of, of the utmost economic importance to the broader United States. And so much of this is, is paved in, in the early republic as the, the Southeast is prepared and, and to become a, a, the premier portion of, of the American slave society. Right. Um, there's an interesting counterpoint to the figure of Edward Nichols in this book, and that is somebody who American audiences will be more familiar with, and that's Andrew Jackson. Uh, the very last interview uh, I did in, in New Books in American Studies with, was with Mark Cheatham, who uh, just published a biography entitled Andrew Jackson, Southerner. Um, what did you learn about Andrew Jackson as a... Uh, as a person, as a man, as a counterpoint to Edward Nichols in this book? I think it's the relationship between Nichols and Jackson is utterly fascinating. And everything I said about Nichols earlier, um, you can say pretty much the identical thing about Jackson, um, except for where he ends up. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is uh, I think people underestimate the significance of Jackson's Irish origins. Um, Jackson was, was born to Ir Ir Northern Irish parents. 
He grew up uh, in the back country of, of South Carolina in a northern Irish community. And I think a lot of the impulses that Nichols had, um, the maybe feeling a little bit insecure about his ethnic identity and a fundamentally mm-hmm. Anglo entity, uh, were also there for, for Jackson. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, this explains Jackson's immense energy, Jackson's uh, total embrace of, of violence, um, and Jackson's um, extreme willingness to protect what he saw as, as the racial order. And in a lot of ways, uh, these two guys, I think, are kind of compensating, again, for their insecurities and Nichols' way of compensating is to conceptualize the British Empire as liberal, universalist, anti-racist. Jackson's way to compensate is to conceptualize the American Empire as white, um, slave-driven, and essentially, fundamentally, uh, I don't know if racist is is the right word, uh, but racial order is essential to this. And both Mm -hmm. guys uh, throw all of their energy and all of their passions into these things, um, largely because, again, they they have this insecurity. Um, They revile each other, and they (laughs) write letters about each other, and they come very close to fighting each other, and both hope for the death of, of the other over and over again in the most explicit terms. But what neither seems to get is that they are two, two sides of, of, of one coin. Um, and they could easily end up being the same person. If, if Jackson was born in Coleraine and Nichols was, was born in South Carolina, I, I suspect that Nichols would have been the, the, the president in the 1820s and that Jackson would have been the man who drove uh, the Americans nuts in the Southeast. <laughs> Uh, as you as you discussed in in your book, and you just mentioned this right now, uh, Jackson was not merely committed to protecting and extending slavery. He was dedicated to protecting and extended what you call a racial order. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that term? I think that in the early Republic, especially in this period, um, in the era of, of the War of 1812 and the era of the Patriot War and the era of the Creek War, which are 1812 through 1814, respectively, uh, the southern frontier is, is a fantastically violent place, and it's a, it's a place that makes Washington nervous, and it's a place um, which creates uh, questions about uh, loyalty, um, about uh, all these different things. And I think the, the single biggest fear that white Southerners have during this period is slave rebellion, um, especially after Haiti. And I think you need to look at, at this fear of, of slave rebellion and then Indian War, number two, um, as national security issues. And um, these are pressing issues that that face uh, the expansion of the United States, but, but uh, imperil American citizens. Um, Jackson sees the Red Stick War, the Red Sticks, Jackson sees um, Spanish Florida and their lack of control over the black and, in, and indigenous population. Jackson sees Nichols and um, all these different things as things which can lead to slave rebellion, as things which will lead to Indian uprising. And in Jackson's mind, that equals um, a restive frontier, that equals white American casualties, that equals an inability to expand the, the plantation complex, and that, that equals, mm-hmm. again, a national security threat, which must be stopped. And, and you you see this very clearly in Jackson's repeated illegal invasions of Spanish Florida, uh, where he makes no pretenses of, of having sanction from Washington. He makes no pretenses of, of having international law in his side. But what he says is, I'm more than justified morally and ethically, um, because in these cases, um, there is this, this grave threat to essentially white America. Um, and that's, I think, central to um, how white Southerners in particular saw the world dur- during this period. 
Okay, good. Well, it's a good uh, segue, I think, to what we really need to talk about, which is the Maroons, Mm -hmm. um, which is really what this book is about, not about Edward Nichols and not about Andrew Jackson. So you just described the way in which Andrew Jackson kind of saw the world in these racial terms. Uh, Who are these Maroons, and how do they see the world? What are the the influences that go into the way that they conceptualize this Atlantic world? Well, it's it, they're a fascinating group of people, and um, one of the things I, I feel like I've looked at every primary source, um, including archaeology, <laughs> that I could find, and you know, I'm still you're never going to be fully satisfied that you're able to recreate life, but I, I think I did the best job possible. And mm-hmm. what emerges is a picture of hundreds of people. Um, I guesstimate that the average size after the British left in in May of 1815, between July of 1816, so for over a year was probably around 400 people, um, which is a very large maroon community. Mm-hmm. Um, these, these, the, the sex ratio was probably about four to one, male to female, um, which sounds really imbalanced, unless you remember that most other maroons were 90 to 95 to 100% male, so it's a relatively healthy demographic. Um, maybe 10 to 15% of the population were under 15 years old. Um, the oldest person I could find was 55. Um, so you have a, a pretty healthy demographic break, breakdown. And interestingly is where these people came from. And they came from pretty much almost every major slave society, society excuse me, in the Atlantic world. And by that, I mean there were a lot of American slaves from the United mm-hmm. States. There were a lot of slaves from Spanish East and West Florida. Um, these people would have oftentimes had their origins in other parts of the Spanish Atlantic world, places like Cuba, Puerto Rico. A lot of them also would have had their origins in the British Atlantic world, since a lot of slave owners in, in East and West Florida were British, so Jamaica and Barbados. Um, the, one of the leaders was uh, noted as being French, so uh, either mm. Louisiana or, or Haiti. Um, right. A large percentage had been Creek slaves. Uh, the Creeks were very large slave owners mm-hmm. by this point. Mm-hmm. Many have been living with the Seminole Indians. Um, many have been living in autonomous maroon communities themselves for quite some time. Um, one guy even miraculously made it there from Virginia <laughs> on a British wow. naval ship. Um, That's a hike. Yeah, and remarkably, um, a lot of free slaves from St. Augustine, uh, free people of, of color, rather, from St. Augustine joined the, the community. Um, and, of course, you have maybe 5 to 10% directly from Africa. So you have people speaking Spanish and, and French and different African religions and uh, different Indian languages uh, and, and English. Uh, you have people who labored in, in cities. You have people who labored in cotton plantations, people who worked in the low country, rice farms, uh, people who have been living with the Indians for generations. Uh, so you get a remarkable cross-section of, of North American slaves and, and people of, of color. Uh, maybe you just answered this question, but I will ask you to confirm it. And I, I wanted to know uh, how many of these people, to your knowledge, were African-born? You just suggested maybe it was 5 to 10% or maybe it was it higher than that? Or, or do we really have much of an idea? Because, of course, the language that somebody speaks is not necessarily indicative of where they're from. Uh, the French-speaking slave you mentioned, for example, might well have been African-born. It could have been. I, I, I wouldn't have thought any higher than 10%, and okay. that is based on um, where slaves would be coming from in, in these different societies, um, the handful of, of hard evidence I got, and, and names. Um, 
as well, Congo Tom and, and people like that mm. who appear there, mm-hmm. um, who, who right. you know, in, in all probability African. I, I think the day-to-day language would have been English. The majority of people there would have would have spoken English, um, which leads me to the answer to the second part of your question: how they saw the world. Um, they were driven absolutely by their belief that they had been made British subjects. And mm-hmm. what happens is that um, while Nichols is, is there with them for, for the better part of the six months or a year, um, he, one, explains his radical anti-slavery ideology to them. And then before he leaves, he gives all of them pieces of, of paper um, which make them full British subjects. And because he has explained his understanding of the British Empire, his radical anti-slavery message, and then very succinctly and clearly explained what goes into being a British subject, the Maroon community, and this is really without precedent, saw themselves as a polity, an enclave, um, with mm-hmm. the government of British subjects. And remarkably, um, I tracked down evidence from 30 years later, 50 years later, in, in Cuba and the Bahamas, respectively, where the people continue to stick to this idea that they are full British subjects, uh, not an abstraction, um, not kind of, not that they have a relationship with the <laughs> British, that they are British. And this mm-hmm. is remarkable. They have an incredible political consciousness. Uh, how do you think they were able to acquire that consciousness? It just strikes me that, um, you know, I'm doing some work right now on uh, British and American missionaries in Africa. And these uh these Anglo-Americans had the most difficult time communicating the most basic concepts of Protestant Christianity and Western civilization to African peoples because those, those concepts were just completely alien to the, to, to the environment and to the, the, the tribal background of peoples. It, just such a cognitive leap. How do you think these Africans were able to understand and grasp the concepts of British Empire and British liberties that Nichols communicated to them? I think uh, a, a number of different ways. And, and one is what they brought with them. And here's where it's important that I think the majority of them are Creole. Um, that is, pe- people born in, in the Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And they would have brought, I think, their own um, understandings of of what it means to uh, be a slave, what it means to be free, uh, what it means to be a, a political subject. Um, it, these ideas may have been fairly abstract, um, but I, I think because the time and place they were living in, they were acutely aware that these ideas were contested. And then, right. like Haiti, the American Revolution, people of, of color had tried to claim these, sometimes had claimed these, sometimes had been denied. And I think they were aware that this was a, a fundamental time of, of transformation and that being a subject was was good. Uh, being a citizen was was good. <laughs> to serve in a militia was was good, and that that made you made you relatively free. So they brought their own ideas, um, and then uh, I think that over this period of time, when Nichols was there, he sat down and, and explained in, in no uncertain terms. And um, I think he, from what I can figure, had a, a very um, I don't know, charismatic way about him. I think that um, he didn't pull his punches. I mean, some of some of the rhetoric and, and language in, in the speeches is, you know, it's, it's about dying and spilling your British blood to save these people right. of African descent who are all sons of King George. Um, and I, I think that he would have sat down with people who already had a foundation of, of these ideas and, again, instilled his extreme anti-racist message. He would have armed them, trained them, um, and then when it came time to leave, um, he, he would have 
again, taken it that, that one step further and explained to them that you are now British subjects. And as I've been telling you for the last year, that means that you have legal rights, <laughs> you have property rights, uh, you have the right to serve in, in a militia, um, you have the, the right to protect your family, uh, you have all of these different things. And I think that would have brought these abstract ideas that most of these people would have had into, into full clarity um, because I think Nichols would have driven home fiercely the fact that this is the surest route to the most intense version of, of freedom. And, and being a British subject in the age of revolution was about as free as you could, could be, um, mm-hmm. other than being an American citizen. Um, right. And you know, these people were aware they weren't going to become American citizens anytime soon. Um, right. And this is, this is important. And this is also an interesting idea, I think, in that um, lots of Maroons in, in places like Jamaica um, Acquire British status with their treaties, but it was usually as subjects. Um, it was usually as kind of peripheral people who had limited rights, and it, it was parent-child metaphors, and they didn't define themselves as as British. Um, mm-hmm. They they attached themselves to the king and, and more conservative ideas of Britishness. So, um, but in the case of, of Prosser Bluff, uh, these are people who are latching on to the most progressive ideas of the British state and the British empire and ideas about parliament and representation and, and rights. Um, and they're not really monarchists. They're not really royalist. Um, they're, they're much more in line with, with the, again, the more um, kind of liberal contours of a British identity. It seems to me that this, the, you know, there was a, an existential threat hanging over this community. Um, you mentioned that America, the United States, uh, you know, views communities like Prospect Bluff as existential threats. But it, there's a bit of a David and Goliath sort of uh, image here. That what really does the United States have to fear from this community? But this community had a lot to fear from the United States. Uh, to what extent? Did, were they a militarized community, you know, ready to defend themselves at the drop of a hat? It was uh, an, an extremely militarized community. And first of all, Prospect Bluff, where the community is located, was very carefully chosen by, by the British in, in May of, of 1814 as a spot to recruit Native Americans and, and African Americans. And it's a very commanding bluff um, over the Apalachicola River, which at this time was one of the most important waterways in the southeast. Um, the British built uh, a gigantic, highly defended fort, and, and they left the community armed to the teeth, uh, 3,000 rifles. Mm. almost limitless amounts of powder and, and shot. Um, and the community then um, is trained in by the British and they continue to drill in their British uniforms on a daily basis. And they are formidable military antagonists. Um, the first attack on the community comes just a few weeks after the British leave. And very informatively, it, it's not by the Americans, it's by the Creek Indians. And the Creeks are... Uh, slave owning, slave owners, and mm-hmm. uh, there is a large percentage of the Creeks who are allied to the United States are developing uh, a more modern racial consciousness in which they too are, are deeply scared of a racial disorder and view the community as a threat to their slaveholding interest, their national security, um, and the community re- repels this initial invasion, uh, but the community is, is an immense um, 
military power. Uh, and it's also an immense economic power, uh, which remarkably, um, by the spring of, of 1816, is actually undermining the economy of, of Spanish West Florida, uh, including Pensacola, <laughs> the, basically the one Spanish settlement. Uh, and in particular, it's diverting Indian trade away from, from West Florida to the point where the governor of, of Spanish West Florida is saying, look, we can't compete economically with this community. Not only is it a brutal <laughs> military antagonist, but it's draining the colony of, of life. How well informed were Americans about what you call the Negro Fort or what they call the Negro Fort? Very well, very well. And uh, word zips around this, this world very, very quickly, and, and especially when it's about something like uh, 500 heavily armed armed slaves right on the door <laughs> of the plantation complex. But the American press, uh, every other week there, there's a major article on it. Um, a lot of the information is incorrect or suspicious. Um, right. A lot of it's a little bit overwrought. Um, but people are, are aware. Washington is, is aware. And in the South, uh, people are acutely and intensely aware. And probably most importantly, Andrew Jackson's aware. The governor of Georgia is, is aware. Uh, the governor of, of the Louisiana is, is aware. Um, and Americans are are utterly committed to the destruction of, of this, this community because it embodies uh, not just the threat to racial disorder, but because it also um, is one of the last vestiges of foreign interference. And they mm-hmm. see very much the fact that the Brit- they think, at least, that the British are, are pulling the strings and that foreign intervention is as much a threat as, as anything else. So it's kind of the sum of all fears, I suppose, in the white Southern imagination. <laughs> right. You mentioned the uh, gender ratio of prospect bluff being approximately four to one. Um, and that kind of leads me to a question about how they manage their day-to-day affairs. Uh, did that gender ratio lead to any tension within the community? You know, how, how, how did they administer themselves, you know, feed themselves, and, you know, run their political affairs and so forth? In terms of tensions, I, nothing that I could pick up on the record. Uh, what I did pick up on is that uh, families seem to flourish at, at Prophet Bluff. Um, I got the impression that any number of families lived together. Um, there was remarkably, from what I can figure, a school um, where children were educated, which is totally un- un- unheard of in the history mm-hmm. of, of marinage. Um, the lack of, of women in, in many Maroon communities was probably the, the single greatest source of internal threat other than ethnic differences. And right. uh, Maroons went to, to great lengths um, to, to try to avoid this, um, to try to avoid these issues, but very frequently they, they couldn't. And struggles over, over women and, and issues like that and raiding for women got many Maroons into a tremendous degree of, of trouble. Um, I don't get the impression that was the, the case at, at Prospect Bluff, because like, like I said, four to one is, is a relatively balanced yeah. sex ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of daily life, um, they seem to have cultivated fields. Um, it was flourishing in terms of how they were feeding themselves. Uh, they seemed to spend a, a lot of time, the men, hunting, so they had a regular supply of, of meat. Uh, the archaeological records suggest that they, they weren't hungry. Um, they're not eating frogs, they're not eating raccoons and things like that. <laughs> uh, they seem to be well supplied uh, with a, a good diet. They also seem to have um, been wise and held on to the materials that, that the British had left them. Um, right. When the, the fort is destroyed in July of 1816, there's tons of evidence of pots and pans and shovels and wheelbarrows and boats. 
Um, and these things would have been the absolute envy of other maroon communities who simply had to make <laughs> do with what they had in, in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, the community of Prospect Bluff is, you, you cannot argue, is, is far and away the materially wealthiest maroon community and um, the most advantageously situated when it comes to material culture. Um, mm-hmm. And it's largely because it is totally because of its relationship with the British. But um, the people there understood this advantage and then cultivated it. And as I said before, um, they really construct a flourishing, what I think is an exchange economy, where, where they trade with largely the Seminole Indians. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to have an attachment to private property. Um, they seem to um, be very committed to having this economy flourish. And what, they, what they're doing, from what I can figure and argue, is um, they have constructed a British polity, and they have an understanding of, of what subjects do in their polity, and they get along with their lives, and they own their homes, and they cultivate their fields, and they have rights, and they exchange these goods, and that's what's going on at Prospect Love. How do they, uh, you know, politically, how do they make decisions? Is there a, a council they have, uh, form of government? Go ahead. They um, they have three men um, who are identified as, as the leaders, um, three very interesting men who are kind of ideally suited for the job. Uh, they're all originally from, from Pensacola. However, uh, like I said before, one is described as being French. One, I mm-hmm. think, is probably African based on his name. His name is Prince. And one is mm-hmm. literate. And not only is he literate, but he was also the... Um, the skilled slave of the man who had briefly been the mayor of Pensacola. Um, so huh. very privileged and had a very uh, insightful view of, of politics during this era. Um, they're all skilled, and they all seem to have spent a tremendous amount of time with, with Nichols. When Nichols leaves, he right. commissions them as officers. They have an array of supporting officers underneath them. And from what I can figure, um, there were sheriffs, and they had a body of, of law and order, and they had a sense of the physical boundaries of their property as, as well. Um, so it was a coherent government with a great big Union Jack, which flew above the fort every day, <laughs> in which they identified themselves as, as again, uh, leading a British polity, um, not maybe right. ruling as dictators, but, but leading a British polity. Well, maybe that uh, Union Jack, uh, which is... You know, figuratively, one one great big middle finger uh, <laughs> pointed right to Georgia wasn't such a great idea, because as you point out, despite the advantages, uh, the geographical advantages, the material advantages of Prospect Bluff, it, it is it is reduced by the United States. Can can you just give a, a quick rundown about what happens to the to the fort? It is, and I, you have to think that it was it, it was never going to be particularly long-lived um, mm-hmm. because America emerged so um, confident from the War of 1812. Britain was in the process of cutting its losses in the Southeast in particular, and Spanish, the Spanish had almost no control of, over Florida. Um, right. What happens is that in the spring and summer of 1816, um, the forces in play really get going, and in particular, um, Edmund Gaines is commissioned by, by Andrew Jackson um, to oversee a, a, an extended movement against it. He works in concert with the Creek Indians, who again very much want his destruction. And they are, are surprisingly, the Americans, surprisingly diplomatic with the Spanish. And what the Spanish say, Spanish West Florida governor, is that we have no love lost for these people. Uh, they're giving us a headache. We certainly can't do anything about it. Let's mm-hmm. hear from Cuba what, what they say. Um, our superior down there. Um, 
But at the same time, Gaines uh, gets permission from the governor of, of West Florida to be on the Apalachicola River, and if he is, the American forces are fired upon, that they, they can then in turn retaliate. Um, so what happens is Gaines cooked up this elaborate flotilla up from New Orleans, which is going to meet with a, an army brigade and hundreds of Creek Indians, and what he's assuming correctly is that the fort will fire on, on the mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they do. And what happens is Gaines then feels free um, to uh, begin a, a raid on the fort behind the claim of, of self-defense. So mm-hmm. very much in 1816, kind of Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Um, 1816, uh, the, the community fires on the Navy, and what ensues in the very last week of, of July of 1816 is, is a fierce battle. Um, rather, unfortunately for the community, um, a large percentage of, of the military-age men were away on an extended hunting trip. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the leaders who, who are there, and it's primarily Garçon, the, the, the French former slave, are able to get mm-hmm. the vast majority of the inhabitants out. And in particular, they kind of slip out the back where there's a swamp, and they go and join the Seminoles. Um, and in the end of, of 1816, um, there's this freakish incident where the fort is incinerated when the powder magazine lights on. Right. Um, but prior to this point, the very underhanded community was giving the Americans and the Creeks everything they could handle, and they were winning the battle. Um, they had no intention of surrendering. Uh, they had no reason to believe they were going to lose anytime soon, and if it wasn't for this, this freakish shot, who knows how much longer they could have held out. Right. Um, but nonetheless, the fort is incinerated, uh, but the vast majority of, of people have, have since retreated and regrouped with the Seminole Indians. Yeah. Of course, at the end of your book, you talk about you know how these people do escape and they get wrapped up or, or caught up in the uh, another war that Americans probably don't know very much about, which is the first Seminole War. Uh, what happens during that the war and what role do the Maroons play? Well, I, I think um, that the Maroons are absolutely central to, to the first Seminole War and they are, I argue, the, the driving force in the first Seminole War. One, their animosity towards the United States and two, the American desire to wipe out the last vestiges of this Maroon community. Um, what happens is uh, these folks largely um, regroup, living with the Seminoles. Uh, they are utterly Committed to their British status, um, they feel as if their rights have been violated. Uh, they feel as if their allies have have been murdered, uh, and they are as committed to Nichols's message as, as ever before. Um, at the same time, there are a handful of, of British proxies um, who correspond with Nichols, who appear and, and make a series of promises about the reappearance of, of Nichols and recommitment recommit them to these ideas. Um, so they, they, in conjunction with the Seminoles, who are increasingly radicalized as American encroachments become more aggressive and as mm-hmm. they um, absorb a lot of their red stick cousins, um, are, are deeply anti-American. And um, Americans mm-hmm. are really pushing the boundaries of, of American expansion. And at the same time, uh, amongst the American military, uh, there is an absolute desire to to, to round up and destroy the remnants of, of this community uh, because it had been so offensive to American racial sensibilities and, and because it had been such a grave threat to American national security. And I found some of the most remarkable evidence that um, the British 
um, allies are saying to the Sentinels, look, they're just after the people from Prospect Bluff. Um, a, <laughs> an independent Maroon is saying that, look, they're just after the people from Prospect Bluff. Edmund Gaines is saying, look, we're just after the people from Prospect Bluff. Wow. If you give us these people, we will go away. <laughs> um, and they don't. And, and they become these formidable antagonists. And, and the war spans 1817 to 1818. It ends mm-hmm. um, when um, the Americans once again invade Pensacola. But but again, the vast majority of people from Prospect Bluff are still alive, and they've regrouped once again at a large maroon community uh, near modern-day Tampa uh, called, called Angola. Um, Jackson wants to finish them off right there, um, but the president says, no, look, we're in negotiations with the Spanish, so just enough. Um, come back. Uh, 1821, when Jackson is the military governor of, of American Florida, the very first thing he does is send the Creek Indians to destroy this community. Um, they kill a lot of the people who originated at Prospect Bluff. They re-enslave a lot, but many fled once again, and they this time end up in the Bahamas, um, mm. where I think the most hopeful stream ends up. And remarkably, they live for 10 years on an outer island uh, with the British completely unaware they're there, and they live in a town they call Nicholstown. And <laughs> they are that totally... a lot. Yeah, it's incredible. And when the British find them, they share their free papers. They explain what happened with Nichols, and the British say, "Okay, we're convinced you're you're British subjects." Hmm. That's really fascinating. So, uh, how do you follow this up? Uh, what's going to be next for you? Um, kind of the opposite of a micro history. Um, I suppose a, a macro history um, of. Afro-Indian relations in the entire British Atlantic world from 1550 to 1815. Um, so in, in some ways, similar questions about race and, and identity and the contours of, of the British Atlantic world, uh, but really trying to understand um, how these relations, which I think are, are powerfully understudied in, in this region, um, impacted everyday life policy, the formation of, of culture, and all of these different things. So uh, I, I suppose a, a real re-examination of, of the British Atlantic world from a, a black and Indian perspective. Well, that is a, that's a large study, uh, very big. So we'll talk to you then when you finish that. This should be no problem. Yeah, a couple of years probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nathaniel Millett, uh, thank you so much for joining us at New Books in American Studies. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. Uh, So once again, uh, this is Dan Kilbride from New Books in American Studies. We've been talking with Nathaniel Millett about his new book, The Maroons of Prospect Bluff and Their Quest for Freedom in the Atlantic World. Take care, and we'll see you next time.